in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 10. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter in particular today that we're looking at. We ask you to make clear your message to our hearts. Father, if there's anyone in this room that has not made that decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would speak very clearly to their heart today. And Lord, for those of us who know you, speak clearly to us about the compelling call of local and world evangelization. We have a divine mandate resting upon us. Father, I would ask you for physical strength this morning. You would just provide your energy and um, your healing power as I preach. That this message would go forth with all the heartfelt passion that the Apostle Paul had when he wrote it. Inspired by your Spirit, speak to us 2,000 years later today, fresh and immediately and in the present moment, the living word from the letter as your Spirit personalizes it to our heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we come to the 10th chapter this morning, I decided that it would be best to treat the whole chapter because there's a certain flow to the argument that Paul brings in this passage that touches all the aspects of salvation and also of proclaiming the message of salvation. Paul is explaining to us what has happened with the Jewish people. And he spent most of chapter 9 talking about God's choices and his sovereignty in calling out a nation and in directing that nation. And and yet, these special people called of God have resisted the very work of God in their lives and resisted their own Messiah. And Paul is explaining why the gospel is now going to the Gentiles and why the Jewish people are resisting this message of Jesus Christ. And as he explains that, he opens in chapter 10 with the first verse, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And even before I get into the outline officially, I just want to pause there and underline something, and Angela, you reminded us this morning to pray. Paul knows that the Jewish people are hardened toward the gospel. He knows that God is turning his attention to the Gentiles. He knows that in time to come, very few Israelites are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. They have hardened their heart toward him. 
He told us in chapter 9, he said, if I thought me going to hell would save my kinsmen, I would do that. God is my witness, he said. Because it's such an incredible thought. But he realizes that they have resisted and refused and are now rejecting Jesus Christ. And yet he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And I just want to underscore for us this morning of the necessity of continuing to pray for lost people. Continuing to intercede on behalf of those who have been resistant to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knows in his heart that most Jews are really not going to turn to Christ, and yet he prays for them, because there may be one somewhere. And he prays that God would have mercy on them, and that they would have the opportunity for salvation. And friends, I want to give you that message out of this chapter, out of this first verse. Never give up praying for your loved ones who are without Jesus Christ. Never stop holding them before the Lord. Never stop lifting them up. You never know when even decades later someone will come to Christ in the most unexpected moment. You never know when the heart will suddenly melt. You never know how old a person may be before they turn, and yet they may turn. And we need to have a burden on our heart for those whom we know that are lost without Jesus Christ. You know, I, I used to keep prayer lists. I've told you this before. Years ago, I kept these prayer lists, and, and they got to be pages long, and I had all these names. And it got to be where even in an hour of praying, I couldn't even get through the list hardly. And I found myself saying, Lord, save this one, bless this one, touch this one, help this one. You know, it's like, after a while, even I saw the meaninglessness of that. It was like, good grief. I, you know, and some of these people I don't even know. Somebody just came up to me and said, pray for my cousin. <coughs> His wife's, her, her uh, you know, niece's name is thus and so, and she needs to be saved. And I'd write it down and and, and after a while, it's like, I don't even know these people I'm praying for. I don't know anything about them. And, and I had a hard time doing that. But then it occurred to me, God has put people in my life that I know. They're the people that I buy groceries from. They're the people I work with. They're, they're people in my neighborhood. They're people I know. I know their names. I know their face. I know their life. I see them on a somewhat regular basis. And I can pray for them with understanding and with intelligence. And it occurred to me that the whole body of Christ is like that. All of us know a whole group of people by face and by name and, and from experience and interaction. We know these people and we know that they don't know the Lord. And we have the opportunity to pray for them. And we can pray with intelligence, not just Lord bless them, but Lord, so-and-so's having a tough time with their uh, you know, 14-year-old and, and it's given them a struggle and in this time in their life, would you open their eyes and their heart to the wisdom and counsel that you have for them? Would you use this difficult time in their family to draw them toward your heart? You know, so-and-so has been blessed. They just got a great promotion and, and, and uh, a, a huge windfall. And Lord, would you show them that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance and the blessing. You can pray scripture, you can pray specifically, you can pray 
for these individuals that you know. And if all the church would do that, I dare say that most of the people in the world would be covered by prayer. They say, you know, that if you, if you take any random group of, of individuals uh, and, and get any four of them together and get them talking, they will find someone they know in common. Isn't that amazing? Statisticians have done this study. They say if you're on a plane and you're sitting around, you know, four or five people, if you would all start talking to each other and talking about uh, where you're from and who you know and what you do and whatever, that you would eventually find within four human beings, you'd find a common person that, you, that you've known somewhere along the way. I, that stretches my mind a little bit. I, I find that difficult. And yet, isn't, haven't you had the experience of being somewhere, meeting someone, you're on vacation, you meet someone from another place, find out you're from the same hometown, and lo and behold, you know so-and-so together, you know, that way back 20 years ago. If you all prayed for the people in your life that you knew that needed Jesus Christ, I dare say that the entire United States, every person in this country would be prayed for in some way, and beyond its borders. And we have upon our hearts the necessity of praying for lost people. Because it is through prayer that the Holy Spirit works. It is through prayer that hearts are softened. It is through prayer that God is released to work in the lives of people. It's a mystery, but God has chosen to operate through prayer. Not through our work, not through our talent, not through our programs, not through our methods. Those things get used in the process, but prayer is what makes the difference. And Paul prayed for people that he knew most likely would never come to Christ, but he prayed for them that somewhere along the way, someone would come to know Jesus Christ. Well, this chapter falls neatly into a message about salvation. And in these first five verses, Paul says, for I bear them witness, verse 2, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. What does it mean when Paul says the Jews did not know the righteousness of God? They had the Ten Commandments. They had the Law and the Prophets. They had all of this background. Of all the people on the planet, they knew the laws of God. They knew the character of God. He had revealed himself to them. What does Paul mean they did not know the righteousness of God? Well, he's not talking about the character of God or the Ten Commandments or the Law and the Prophets. He's talking about the gift of righteousness that God is willing to give to those who trust Jesus Christ. Do you remember going all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the thesis of this letter? 
the theme. You know, whenever you read a, a you know a journal article or whatever, there's an abstract at the top, and there's usually a thesis statement. And that abstract, in two or three or four sentences, attempts to explain the the whole essence of the article. But there's usually a thesis statement. This is what I set out to do. And in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul gives us his thesis. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for in it, that is in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed on the basis of faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The essence of the gospel is that apart from our own effort, God is willing to give us a righteousness, a righteous gift from himself that we cannot produce on our own. And when Paul says not knowing about the righteousness of God, he's not speaking of God's character revealed in the law and the prophets. He's speaking about the gift of righteousness that is being offered freely through Jesus Christ. And he says, and seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. This describes the Jew, but it also describes every religious person. I suppose atheists don't care one way or the other. Whatever code they live by, they have denied the existence of God and the possibility of eternal life. But everyone who is not an atheist has a religion. And every religion on the planet has this goal to establish a righteousness of my own. It looks like this. I hope I can be good enough to be accepted by God. I hope I can keep the rules well enough to be granted life in paradise or nirvana or wherever you want to go. I hope that by following the philosophy... I can attain uh, some eternal status of peace. I'm trying to establish a righteousness on my own. It's not just a Jewish problem, it's a religious problem. It's even a problem within Christendom. Because many people in churches across the world are striving without the knowledge of the righteous gift of God, they're striving to establish their own righteousness. If I get baptized, if I join the church, if I go to confession, if I follow the rules, if I keep the regulations. One person uh, this morning in the 8 o'clock service said to me after he was a part of a fairly large denomination that is um, very Arminian in its uh, particular theology, and he said they concluded every service by saying, and Lord, if we have been faithful, please save us. If we have been faithful. I don't care how much you profess the gospel. If that's your conviction, you're depending on a righteousness that you have produced. If we have been faithful. If we are faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. I'm grateful that God is holding me. I'm depending on Jesus, not my ability to be faithful. I'm depending on Jesus Christ. Every religion in the world is looking to establish a righteousness of its own. 
And the idea in every system is that somehow or another, the good things I do will outweigh the bad so that I can be acceptable in the final judgment. There's a great misunderstanding along those lines, friends. People do not understand the depth of the holiness of God. That's the first thing they miss. They do not understand the depth of the holiness of God. The second thing is they do not understand the depth of their own sinful depravity. They don't know that their heart, according to the scriptures, is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, and that even they themselves cannot know it. They do not understand the meaning of Isaiah's prophecy that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Not all of our sin, but all of the best we have to offer, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. And hoping to establish a righteousness of their own, they're thinking their good works will outweigh their bad. But God does not grade on the curve. And when you want to know the standard of God's judgment, Jesus gives it in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after he has reinterpreted the Ten Commandments and explained them in ways that uh, people could, uh, could really get their teeth into. You have heard that it was said, Thou shalt do no murder, but I say unto you that if you have hatred in your heart for another human being, the seed of murder lies within your breast, and you have murdered your brother in your spirit. Whoa. And then he gets to the end of those Ten Commandments, and he says, here's the standard. You are therefore to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. God brooks no breach. And if you want to live according to Moses, the man who practices the righteousness based on law shall live by that righteousness. If that's the standard by which you want to be measured, here is the bar. From the second of your birth until the second of your death, never once in thought, in word or in action, deviate from the absolute moral perfection of a holy God your entire life from first breath to last. You say, that seems rather harsh. No one can reach that. Well, yes, that's the point of the gospel. But why can't God grade on the curve? Why can't he give partial credit? Why won't he recognize an A or a B for effort? What if you make 93% on the eternal test? That's an A in anybody's book. It used to be 97, then it was 95. Is it 90 most places now? We can't even pull it off in high school, you know. But, but that's the, the, the standard. When I was teaching evangelism explosion, it's kind of a silly illustration, but it does make the point. They, they, they used to have the omelet illustration. Do any of you remember the omelet illustration? How many of you remember that? Oh, good. Thank you very much, because I taught evangelism explosion here. Some of you took it, and I'm thinking, <laughs> you didn't get much if you didn't get the omelet illustration. Suppose I have you over to breakfast. I have a group over to breakfast and I'm going to stir up some scrambled eggs or an omelet in my frying pan and I'm going through, I'm going to make a dozen eggs and I go through the first 11 and they're beautiful golden yolks and nice clear whites and they're coming into my mixture. 
And then I get to that 12th egg, and I break it, and it falls into the mixture, and I realize, oh, it's rotted. Oh, oh, it stinks. Man, it's ugly. It's Well, I won't go into any more detail, because you've got to eat lunch. But here's this rotten egg in the batch. How many of you would want me to serve that to you if I just kind of stirred it in and said, well, good grief, it's only 7% of the whole. You know, 8%. This is a 92% omelet. I'll just stir it in and give it to you, right? You don't want that. Because the minute that hits there and it gets mixed up, the rottenness penetrates everything else, and you can't change the fact that it is tainted. And friend, there's no way in our lives we can ever make up for the deficit by adding good eggs to a bad mix. We can't dilute it enough to be pure and holy before a holy God. We cannot get rid of the stench of our sin. And God says, I will by no means clear the guilty. He is a holy God, and His standard is 100%. None of us can measure up. And Moses says, if that's the way you want to live, you're going to have to live it all the way. You're going to have to go to the end without ever breaching the holiness of God. Not one time in your whole life can you act with selfish interest. Not one time. We don't make it out of the crib before we've messed up. Because that's who we are. We're stained with sin. And friends, there's no way we can establish a righteousness of our own. But, in verse 6... The righteousness based on faith speaks this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith with which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Paul says, here's the heart of the gospel message. Not that we can can ascend up to heaven in some way, or that we can even go into the abyss in some way to, to bring Christ down, or to make up some deficit, or anything like that. Not that we can do that. But he says the word is near you. It's not way out there or way down here. It's near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart and in your mind. The word that we're preaching. I believe Paul is saying to us here that when the gospel message is preached, the Holy Spirit is proclaiming it on the inside, even as the the, the messenger is proclaiming it on the outside. That God accompanies the proclamation of the word with the presence of his spirit. And he he opens the eyes and he brings conviction to the heart. And here is the message. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You know, we use that word and it's, it's come into some disrepute because... It it has sort of a backwoodsy, uncultured sound to it now. Are you saved? But the Greek word saved means are you healed? Are you well? Are you whole? Have you been restored? 
The word salvation, to be saved, means in spirit, soul, and body, to be redeemed, to recover. Have you been healed in your spirit? Are you alive in Jesus Christ? And he says, with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now I want to say to you, there's not two parts here to salvation. There's only one element in salvation that has both an inward and an outward expression. Paul is using a little bit of Hebrew poetry. He's read so much of the Old Testament that it just falls out of him every once in a while. And the Hebrews (coughs) wrote poetry in two line stanzas, basically. And they were either, well, I won't go into all that. I'm not going to get into Hebrew poetry. But I just want to say, this one is synthetic. It means that the first line states one thing and the second line embellishes it a little bit. And so here's the statement, with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And this is the whole unit. Belief and confession, that inward change and outward expression that I have come to know Jesus Christ. This harkens back to chapter 4 where he said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Paul is simply maintaining consistency with his theme throughout Romans. How is it that I get this righteous gift that God is offering? If I can't produce my own, where does it come from? The scripture says of Jesus Christ, He who knew no sin was made sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And so, the Scripture says, if I come to Jesus Christ and and stop trusting in my own efforts, and put my confidence in the work that He did on the cross, and His blood shed for me, and believe that that work was on my behalf, and instead of relying on my effort to somehow make it to heaven. I say, God, I'm not going to count on my performance anymore. I'm not going to count on how how good I can be. I'm not going to depend on my faithfulness and my diligence and, and, and my persistence to somehow even the score or get ahead or make the A or the B but I am going to cast all of that aside and put all of my confidence in Jesus Christ who died for me. I'm going to trust that that what He did on the cross meets your requirements. And I'm going to believe that if I put my faith in Him, you're going to give me a righteousness that you will accept. And so I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I trust Him as the Savior from my sin and the atonement for my iniquity. And I believe that you're going to give me a holiness that is acceptable in your sight. The very righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a gift. And if anyone comes to that point of true belief and true conviction that begins in the heart that responds toward God, it comes forth in an outward testimony. I will follow Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. I will commit my life to Him. It has has come from my heart and now it's coming out of my mouth. 
There aren't any secret saints. You can't be a clandestine Christian. You may not have occasion every day to plainly speak the gospel of Christ. You may have more opportunity than you realize because you're not praying for those opportunities and perhaps your eyes are not open. But you may not necessarily uh, every break time witness to somebody about Jesus Christ. Every time you go to the store, you, you may not witness to someone in the store about the gospel but the truth of the matter is that on your lips there should be a ready response. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I'm trusting Him for salvation. He has changed my life. The early believers, not long after Paul wrote this, many of them had that question put to them in the arena, waiting for the lions. Do you confess Jesus Christ is Lord, or will you bend the knee to Caesar? And those whose hearts had been changed by the power of the gospel said, I cannot deny my Lord. Whether it's in the supermarket or in the arena, those whose hearts have been turned toward Jesus Christ and who have fallen in love with him with the belief that is a saving faith, out of their mouth comes the testimony. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul says this simple declaration of faith is what results in eternal salvation. Because we cannot earn it. We can't work for it. We're never going to deserve it. But God has done the work for us in Jesus Christ in making it accessible and possible. For there is no distinction, he says, verse 12, between Jew and Greek. For the name of the, for the same Lord is Lord of all, and abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When I was growing up, I had a great grandma who was, I think, in her early 90s. A little tiny thing, sat in a wheelchair ever since I knew her. She always had a Bible in her lap and a magnifying glass that she could read that Bible with. She also had a little can of snuff on the other side. <laughs> That's beside the point. I don't know why I said that. It's not, it's not part of the story, but it's part of the visual memory. And my great-grandma was a woman who loved God and loved his word. But, and, and if my mother ever heard this sermon, which she won't, but if she ever did, she, she would just, she wouldn't speak to me for weeks. She'd be so upset with me over what I'm about to say, even though it's true. My great-grandmother was what they called themselves primitive Baptists. Now, I know some of you think all Baptists are primitive, but... There is a branch called Primitive Baptist. And uh, other folks call them Hardshell Baptist. And what they are is hyper-Calvinist. And by that I mean 
They do not believe you should witness. And by all means, don't send a missionary. Because if you go and tell people they can be saved, you're going to be interfering with the sovereignty of God in election. If God wants the Chinese or the Africans or the Indonesians saved, he'll send an angel. But don't you dare go and mess up his plan by sending a person. And don't talk to anybody about trusting Jesus because you're going to mess up God's sovereign purpose in election. He'll, he'll save the ones he wants, and you don't get involved in that. Now, that's extreme, to say the least. But Paul makes it plain in verse 13 that the, the gospel message is quite different. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The opportunity is open. For anyone who would respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, whoever will call on the name of the Lord can be saved. Ah, but he says, how shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good news, of good things. Thursday, I spent most of the day in the district office interviewing three candidates for, for uh, ministry in the Christian Missionary Alliance as part of the licensing and ordaining committee. And it seems to have lately fallen my lot to ask the theological questions. We kind of divvy it up in the interview committee group. There some ask the personal questions about calling and salvation and call to ministry and background, all that kind of stuff. And other people ask the lifestyle questions and, and, and moral and character issues. And uh, another person will ask questions about spiritual gifts and interest and all those kinds of things. And uh, somehow or another, I've been dubbed the theologue of the committee. And I get to ask the what do you believe questions. And there are several things I'm very, very interested to know. I want to know what they believe about the scriptures. I want to know what they believe about the deity of Christ. I want to know what they believe about the, 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 the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. And I want to know what they believe about the necessity of world mission. And so I ask the question, is it possible for anyone in the world today to go to heaven without a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ by name, to call upon him by name? And I want to know if they believe in the lostness of the lost and the necessity of proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. How shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? What is Paul telling us? He is telling us that the gospel message is whosoever believes in him shall be saved, but they must believe in him. There is no alternative. 
Jesus Christ says, I am the way, both the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way. Jesus is the only name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. The question was asked in the book of Acts as the gospel is being preached, how then shall we be saved? And the answer was, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I have said it in the past. I say it again. I say it in a recording that's going to be on the internet throughout the world. My friends, listen. It's not that we're bigots. It's not that we're, we're narrow-minded Christians. It's that there's only one God in heaven, our Father who has given us His Word and His Son. And there is only one Lord Jesus Christ who is the only Savior, the only sinless incarnate Son of God who died on the cross for my sin and shed His blood that I could be cleansed. And there's no one else that can be my Savior. I can't get there any other way. Islam is an effort of works to somehow attain righteousness through self-effort and sacrifice. Judaism, apart from Christ, is a religion of works to attain righteousness. Buddhism is a philosophy of life, and Hinduism is, is the uh, approbation of several thousand gods and, and a lifestyle somehow devoted to doing the best I can. But only Jesus Christ has come out of the grave to prove His triumph. Only He has died for my sin. Only He is the Son of God, the living God, who now is in heaven, ever living to make intercession for me. And there's no other name. Friends, people without Jesus Christ are lost. They will be separated from God at death. They will spend eternity in hell apart from Him. That should not make us bigots, arrogant, or puffed up in our pride. It should break our hearts in humility as we are compelled to share the message with our fellow human beings whom we love. Lost church members. Lost Muslims. Lost Buddhists. Lost Hindus. Lost Jews. The message of Jesus Christ. We love you. Jesus died for you. Will you come to Him? It's the only name. It's the only way. And friends, we have a divine compulsion to go. I grew up a Baptist. Not a primitive Baptist, but a Baptist. I took a detour through the charismatic movement and landed in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And I landed here for one reason. What I believed in my heart was codified by the principles and tenets of this denomination in many, many ways. But one, one of the strongest attractions for me is that we say missions is our middle name. We're the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And the driving passion of A.B. Simpson, who founded this movement, was to win the world for Christ and bring back the King. 
And from the very beginning, we have sent people around the world to share the message of salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there's no other way that they can come to know Him. Robert Jaffrey went to China and then Southeast Asia and then the, the, the Indonesian islands. And others went other places. I remember Dr. Lewis King, a former missionary statesman in our movement, talking about the time that he visited in Indonesia and looked at the graves of five of our first missionaries who had given their lives as young people. They didn't die in their 70s. They died in their 20s and 30s as they gave their life that people in Kalimantan and people in the Balim Valley could come to know Jesus Christ. Those people in the Balim still uh, living in ultra-primitive conditions whom the anthropologists wanted to preserve. The Christian and Missionary Alliance had a great passion for the lostness of human beings who needed to know Jesus Christ for salvation those who lived in fear of the spirit world, those who uh, tried to appease the, the wicked spirits, those who murdered one another in tribal rivalry. And one day, revival came to the Baalim, and hundreds of thousands came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Today, the Indonesian church is huge. Today, the church in Philippines is larger than the church in the United States in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Today, there are churches, national churches throughout Africa and South America that are huge because of the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many have turned in faith to Him because there has been a conviction that if we do not go, they will not hear. And if they do not hear, they will die in their sin without Christ. But, Ezekiel says, if I say to you, warn the wicked man in his wickedness, and you do not warn him, then his sin, he will die in his sin, and his sin will be on his own head, but I will hold you responsible for his blood. Because I told you to go and give him the message. My friends, we are not guilty of the sins of people around the world, but very frequently we are guilty of not going. How shall they hear? How shall they hear? They must hear the message of Jesus Christ. How shall they hear without a preacher? We have that divine mandate. I started out by saying we need to pray for the lost. We need to give for those who go. We need to go ourselves. We need to be willing to share the message because there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Paul ends by saying, however, they did not all heed the glad tidings. Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? 
Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Speaking of the Jews, oh yes. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? At the first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Speaking of the Gentiles, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Paul is telling us that God is still reaching out to Israel. He's still stretching out his hand, but they are a disobedient and obstinate people. They have rejected their Messiah. They are without Jesus Christ. And throughout history, God has been in this tug of war with this people whom he called and upon whom he set his affection, but who, for the most part, never really got it. And he has reached out his arms all day long to a stubborn people. And so God has now brought the message to the Gentiles. And one day, he will bring it back to Israel. I'm glad for that. Friends, if if you're here this morning without Jesus Christ, I don't know how I could have made it any plainer. I don't care how many good eggs you've got in your life. You can't deny that the bad is there. Your life is tainted. You cannot stand in the presence of a holy and a perfect God with even the slightest molecule of sin in your being and hope to pass the bar of absolute perfection. But God will give you a righteousness of his own in exchange for your rags if you will trust in Jesus Christ with all your heart. And for those of us who are here this morning and know him, friends, we have a divine mandate. We must pray. We must give. We must go. We must be willing to share our faith. We must have the word of Christ on our lips. We must pray. I'm not talking about going out here without the guidance of the Holy Spirit and and just uh, foolishly banging everyone over the head with a gospel track. interviewed, I have to tell you this in closing, interviewed uh, our third candidate Thursday, um, Filipino gentleman who's working in a church down over in Skokie, and uh, they're wanting to come into the Christian Missionary Alliance, and he's now become the senior pastor of that church, but he's a nurse at Evanston Hospital. And he talked about how when he first got saved, he said, I had a zeal, but I didn't have it very well refined. And he said, I was down witnessing on Rush Street in Chicago in 1985. When I first got here, he said, I didn't, I didn't know the English language very well, but I was down there with tracts telling people to be saved and come to Jesus. And he said, I, I would go into bars and say, you need to stop drinking and turn to Jesus. <laughs> I can imagine how that went over. And he said, I, I, people that turned away from me, he said, I'd follow them and I, and I would tell them, you need to come to Jesus. He said, I was following this one guy one day. He was kind of had a hood over his head and he was wearing dark glasses and he kept walking away from me and I kept telling him, sir, you need to 
come to Jesus, you need to take this track and read how to be saved. And he said, I followed the guy all the way down the block. And finally, this man turned and looked at me through his dark glasses, he said. And he said, if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to mug you. And he said, I didn't know the word mug. I didn't know what that meant, but he didn't look very friendly then. (laughs) And so he said, I I left him alone. And then he talked about how God had given him more wisdom in recent years in sharing his faith. But I thought, yeah, but what a zeal, man. I wish we all had that zeal. I wish we all had that compassion, that driving ambition to bring people to Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting you go out of here without wisdom, without the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and just make yourself obnoxious. But I am saying to you, we need to be ready in season and out of season, always ready to share the word of Christ, to give a a reason to those who ask for the hope that is in us, to pray for opportunities to speak into their lives, to look for moments when we can turn the conversation to a chance to share the message of Christ. We need to have that compulsion in our heart because we have a divine mandate. And people without Jesus are not going to get there on good behavior. They're going to die in their sin. And some of their blood is going to be on our hands. Father, I pray this morning you open our eyes to the truth. I pray, Father, for anyone here who might not know you, please this morning speak to their heart. Make plain the message, whosoever will may come. They can come today, this moment, and trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I pray for us. Lord, you have given to us a trust, a high and holy vocation to tell the world Until we must, the story of your great salvation. Oh God, press on our heart the woe. Put in our feet the go. Let us be faithful to our trust. And use us for your glory. A hundred years ago, A.B. Simpson penned those words in a hymn, Lord, and it's driven the heart of this movement ever since. May it be so today. In Jesus' name, amen.